Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Taking Care of My FRAR Clothing, Can I Mess It Up?, sponsored by Bulwark. My name is Barry Botino. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be the moderator for today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first, I'd like to go over some preliminary items today. The views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box on the left-hand portion of your screen and click the button question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during today's presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible today, but we might not get to every question. In case there are any unanswered questions, those will be forwarded along to today's speakers. If you have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our helpful tips on the right-hand portion of your screen. And for basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button, which is located on the bottom of your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's get started. Our speaker today is Derek Sang. Derek is the Technical Training Manager at Bulwark and a subject matter expert in the flame-resistant clothing industry. For more than 20 years, he has worked in a variety of roles in the service, manufacturing, and garment areas of the business. Training and education also have been a major part of Derek's work. He's developed more than 40 hours of training curriculum for Bulwark University, and he's conducted over 250 seminars on the hazards of arc flash and flash fire. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into the presentation today. Derek, whenever you're ready, take it away. Barry, thank you for that kind introduction, and good morning and or good afternoon to wherever you are listening today. And first and foremost, thank you very much for tuning in live to our webinar. So let's get started. Taking care of my FRAR clothing. First and foremost, let's explain some of the acronyms talk about. FR is flame resistant. AR is arc rated. Why do we state it that way? All arc rated clothing is flame resistant. Not all flame resistant clothing is arc rated. So taking care of our clothing, let's get the uh, legal stuff out of the way before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this. This presentation is for informational purposes only. Customers of Bulwark Protection are solely responsible for conducting their own hazard risk assessment to identify safety hazards in their work environment. Customers of Bulwark Protection are solely responsible for selecting appropriate garments and protective gear for their employees and ensuring wearers use the garments and protective gear properly and in conjunction with appropriate gloves and footwear. Because working conditions and other factors may vary, Bulwark Protection does not make any representation that these garments and protective gear will protect wearers from injury. All right, that's out of the way. Welcome to our webinar. The premise today is we receive a lot of questions around flame-resistant arc-rated clothing and how to properly care for and maintain it once we have it, because this is a huge investment. At the end of the day, you're outfitting people with, with either shirts and pants, coveralls, outerwear, rain gear, arc-rated vests, beanies, whatever the case may be, at the end of the day, each worker is going to be an investment. So how do we care for this stuff and maintain it once we get it? Who's responsible for the care and maintenance at the end of the day? What are maybe like Taking a look, people love lists. What are the top 10 things we should be talking to our people about? Because training is essential. What about hazards outside the environment? How do protecting ourselves against vector-borne disease, such as mosquitoes and ticks, what do we need to consider when we're 
uh, implementing flame-resistant arc-rated clothing in those cases. When should I look to an industrial launderer? When is it okay to take my stuff home? What are some of the variables that I can look at and kind of make a decision? And is there a best of both worlds? The good news at the end of the day, it's pretty hard to mess this stuff up if you do a few key things correctly and consistently over time. The FR properties of today's proven, and the key word in this statement is proven suppliers, proven supply chain partners are for the life of that garment. And, then, and therefore they are durable, not just to laundering, but to wear and tear in that environment. And they've been proven over multiple sales cycles. That means we've invested in this technology not just once because it's the latest and greatest, but over time. It's key to understand what you can and cannot do as a wearer and what you need to be aware of as an employer of what these garments that are now PPE can and cannot do. And then when we look at the marketplace, it's radically changed as far as option goes. Back in the day when I got started, and I tell people I got started when you could have any style, any color of navy blue Nomex coverall that you wanted, because really 25 years ago, Nomex dominated oil and gas, and heavyweight FR cottons dominated uh, the steel industry. And that was really the, the crux of your FR. You had four to five different uh, fabrics at the time. You had Endura, Endura Ultrasoft. You had Nomex. You had Kermel, a.k.a. European Nomex. And you saw the Mototrilic starting to get into the play, but really PBI Kevlar was the other one. And that was all the technology that we had at the time. And here, if you look in the marketplace just in the last four to five years, it's dramatically changed. Who's responsible when we boil everything away? Well, if you look at it and you want to determine who's responsible, pretty much the regulations and the standards all point to you as the employer. So what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, in the most basics of terms, if you look at the general duty clause, as an employee on day one when we shake hands and everybody is happy, that arrangement is you will not hurt, maim, or kill me on the job. That's really when you boil things away is what the general duty clause says. So as an employer, what am I tasked to do? I am tasked of doing a hazard risk assessment or where and what you will be interacting with. And for the most part, hazard assessments are relatively simple, common sense stuff. If I work in an area where things can fall from height and strike me on the head, I'm given a hard hat. If there's stuff in the air spinning around and can go in my eyes, I've got safety glasses. Over 185 decibels on the job floor, I've got hearing protection. If really big, heavy stuff can fall on my feet and I need more than steel toe shoes, I need metatarsal protection, that also falls into the hands of the employer. If I'm an electrician and I'm working on one of those gray boxes and I can have an arcing fault and it could potentially ignite my normal everyday work clothing, I now have to have work clothing that is arc rated and has been tested to protect me against that arc flash hazard. If I'm working in a chemical facility or a refinery or in oil and gas, and there can be an accidental exposure to dust, gas, or vapors of ignitable liquid resulting in a flash fire, now my clothing also must become PPE. So as an employer, where can I look to? I've identified the hazard. Now I want to verify that the PPE is compliant to that. Well, one of the easiest places to look initially is look at labels. Understand what all those labels on that PPE are communicating to you. If you have an arc flash hazard, that label is going to tell you what its arc rating is. 
That label is going to tell you what it's been tested to in order to show you that there's an arc rating. If it is a flash fire hazard, we'll show you that uh, label here shortly. But we communicate a lot of information. Uh, for the most part, 99.9% .9 of the time, this is just really expensive soil protection. But God forbid there happens to be an incident, that label is going to give you a ton of information. We're required to, to uh, be able to catalog and to be able to archive what roll of fabric that shirt, pant, or coverall was constructed from. Then knowing that, where it was made, when it was made, we can access the actual data, the test data from the roll of fabric it came from. And we're required to hold on to that for 10 plus years. So again, that chain of custody piece from proven supply chain partners, there's a lot of information on that label. When we go into our flash fired, we have the logo there that you see down on the UL logo. That's the logo from the independent third party uh, verifier that these garments are indeed certified to be compliant to NFPA 2112. Why is that important? The NFPA 2112 standard is how we build garments to protect you against flash fire. The key takeaway in talking about labels is understand everything can be verified. When you are working with your supply chain partner and you want to get the arc flash test data, the flash fire test data, the certifications, the test reports, any good quality supplier can access that information and get it to you readily and easily. What I ask you to do is take an independent step on your own to verify that because labels are indeed important, but they are not the end all be all to absolutes. What I mean by that, can they be forged? Can they misrepresent? Can something on a label say something, and when you verify that actual test data, it could be different. My point is, is once you have the results, verify them, and they're relatively easy to do. A few clicks on the UL website will tell you if that manufacturer is indeed certified uh, and in good standing. Why? We have seen evidence in certain marketplaces where people have had garments that have fraudulent labels. If you have an arc flash hazard and you have an arc rating on the garment and you get the test document, call the testing uh, document provider and verify that yes, this company did test with us, yes, this certificate is legitimate, and yes, these results are the same results that we have on file. Not that difficult to do, a little due diligence and you can move along. Now we get into choosing the right PPE. You've went through there, you select it. Your hazard assessment, you're, in, uh, you're looking through your industry consensus standards for that. Uh, why? OSHA says you shall do this. OSHA says you shall do a hazard assessment. OSHA says you shall get the appropriate PPE to protect your people. They don't give you a lot of how along with the shall. So how as safety providers do we accomplish the how? And that's our standards. Whether it's NFPA, ASTM, ANSI, whatever the case may be, that is your playbook. That is your go-to in order to be compliant to what the regulation is telling you to do. The biggest piece when it comes to uh, PPE is 1910-132, your training regulation. Employees Im implementing a PPE program are required by OSHA and all the consensus standards provide training to each employee. When it comes to flame-resistant arc-rated clothing, uh, simple things as properly donning and doffing it. That's our fancy way of saying, put it on properly, take it off properly. Uh, things to consider when doing that. If you have 
nuisance static discharge concerns, for example. If you're in a facility to where uh, you want to isolate the donning and the doffing of your clothing to minimize any risk of a nuisance static discharge and a potential ignition because you have highly sensitive areas. Those are things that need to be trained on. The biggest thing we need to train people on when it comes to flame-resistant arc-rated clothing is not so much what it can do, but what it can't do. There are limitations. When you think about it, we have, through engineering, altered the fabric, the fiber, or the molecular structure to impart flame-resistant properties. You're still dealing with five to seven ounce shirt weight, nine to 14 ounce pant weight in extreme hazards. When you think of all the nasty things that happen in an arc flash hazard, high temperatures, extreme uh, ballistics, noise, uh, you're vaporizing everything inside that gray box and turning it to gas, resolidifying in open air 67,000 times its original size, molten metal traveling 750 miles an hour, and all that's standing between you and serious burn injury is a 5 to 7 ounce shirt and a 9 to 14 ounce pant. There's not a lot of stuff there to make you impervious to injury. That's why all the standards say you are minimizing, mitigating, limiting injury, not eliminating. You are still basically dealing with shirts, pants, and coveralls that we as human beings have engineered to have flame-resistant properties. What is that flame-resistant property? It puts itself out. That's all it does, regardless of where that and how that engineering occurs, regardless of what the fiber complex of that shirt pan or cover is made up of, it just self-extinguishes. Does it t protect you against 2,200 square foot pounds of concussive force? No. Does it protect you against 165 decibels of sound in an arc flash? No. Does it protect you from exposures of greater than three seconds in a flash fire? No, because that fiber complex is going to break down over time. It is short duration, thermal exposure, when you have to basically, it has to end quickly or you have to be aggressing out of it. That all being said, within those parameters it's designed to work, it will save your life. But you're not impervious to injury. You're not Superman. You can't go around shortcutting good, sound, safe work practices because you have flame-resistant clothing, arc-rated clothing on. So it's key that when we are training our end-user populace that they understand the limitations of how, where, and why their PPE works. Proper care and maintenance of this is essential for its effectiveness. It's also essential for maximizing the investment that you've made in this PPE. The standards give you some guidelines. Uh, some best practices can be followed up on that. Uh, when you look at how we've been doing this for 40 plus years in the marketplace, we picked up some things that, hey, they're not written anywhere per se, but if you do these things consistently over time, you will maximize the life of these garments. There are some standards if you need to have those incorporated into your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program. A couple of them, they're ASTM standards, and they are exactly what you'd think they would be. If you want to care for this stuff at home, here's what to do. If you want to uh, assign an industrial launderer, partner with an industrial launderer, here's what, what you need to make sure that they are doing. All our standards basically communicate the same essential feedback to you as a wearer 
follow the manufacturer's guidelines when it comes to care and maintenance of your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. And if you don't have guidelines, can't access guidelines, they'll refer you to the ASTM standards we just talked about, 2757 for home, 1449 for our industrial laundries. Uh, they'll also talk to you that and explain to you that yes, they can all be laundered, they can all be dry cleaned. Uh, they want to prevent buildup of uh, contaminants, obviously, over time. So regularly washing your shirts, pants, and coverall as you would non-flame-resistant work clothing to minimize those. One of the things that a lot of people don't uh, get to hear enough of when you buy new stuff, okay, if you're buying it yourself, it's, it's getting shipped in yourself, or if you're contracting with an industrial launderer, that first initial wearing prior to that, make sure you've laundered your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing at least once. Why is that? Why would you say that? In the cutting and sewing process, there's a lot of sizing that goes into making sure that we minimize seam slippage, make sure that they can use the laser cutting devices and the other cutting devices to make sure that there's no slippage of the fabric. We want to get that stuff off before we go and implement our PPE into a thermal protection roll. Uh, so make sure that stuff just goes through the laundry one time, wash it, get all that stuff off before you go in and, and wear it into the environment you're looking to be protected in. So I, as I said, all our standards go to follow the manufacturer's guidelines. Where do you find those manufacturer's guidelines? We are required by our standards to communicate a lot of information to you in those labels. People always ask us, why do you have five to six labels in all these garments? Everywhere I turn, there's labels, labels, labels. That's because our standards require that we communicate a lot of information to you. One of those requirements is, is we tell you how to care and maintain this. If you take time to read your label, it will tell you exactly what you need to do. It'll walk you through the steps. If you don't have access to the label, your manufacturer more than likely has a PDF that they can send you. Hop on their we website, go to care and maintenance, go to resources, however they label, drop down, and you should be able to relatively find it quickly most of the time, I would guess. That all being said, it is relatively simple today. There's a couple things that you have to kind of be uh, on the lookout for. Uh, they're not super tricky, and if you think about them, the chances of you utilize them, you can minimize those. The big one and easy one that people notify right off the top of the head is don't use chlorine. All right? Uh, the sneaky one is peroxide. Chlorine and peroxide are going to weaken those fibers. Those fibers are really what is providing that insulative component. That's what's providing the protection. That's in some cases housing uh, the FR engineering. Uh, you don't want to weaken those, so stay away from chlorine and peroxide. Chlorine, that includes your color-safe bleaches, liquid bleaches, any other form of bleaches that you can add to it. Peroxide, why do I say it's sneaky? That's your OxyClean. OxyClean is the big buzz now on how to get everything uh, amped up and bright and everything. Don't use peroxide. Don't use chlorine. Those are the two big ones. Other things not to do, and here's kind of people like lists. Here's a nice, easy top ten. Most of these you're not going to find in, in a, definitely not in a regulation. You might hear it touch in, in a standard, but really this is a best practice. This is stuff that kind of over time, and mostly it's really good common sense stuff of how you should probably take care of clothing anyhow. Like I said, this stuff is not super complicated if you do the right things consistently. 
So again, don't use bleach or peroxide. That's pretty easy. Don't use any other thing that you would think of as an additive that could build up over time. Uh, things like fabric softener, whether that's in a dryer sheet or the liquid form, those are usually petrochemical based. You're adding an accelerant uh, to your PPE that's protecting you in a thermal environment. Not a good idea. If it happens, don't freak out. It's not something where one and done. Simply rewash it, get that off, and go about uh, business as you would normally. Wash your flame resistant arc rated clothing separately uh, from your normal clothes, from your family's clothes. Uh, makes good sense because you may be bringing some stuff home from work that you're not. 100% about. It's got oils and greases on there. You don't want to see any kind of transference. And then you're not transferring non-FR threads onto FR garments uh, just through transference. I mean, plain and simple. So again, it's a tool. Treat it accordingly. Uh, wash it separately. Uh, color retention. Turn them inside out. That's pretty universal. Uh, it's not mandatory, obviously. I mean, I've been washing and uh, utilizing flame-resistant clothing throughout my whole career. I don't think I've done this once, but hey, if, if you want to enhance and complement uh, that over time, it's something, it's, it's a best practice. Uh, liquid detergents kind of give you the best results. Uh, just go through your wash aisle, go for a good, simple, proven brand of liquid detergent, and you should have no worries. Avoid the hottest temperatures because obviously with cotton-rich fabrics, you're going to impact uh, shrinkage. Uh, so you can kind of dial it back a little bit. For tough stains, you can soak the garments in liquid detergent, soak them in non-bleach stain removers. You can use pre-wash stain removers and soak them. You can do all those things and send them through uh, the wash cycle. For stubborn stains, you can even take these uh, in and have them dry cleaned. Tumble dry on low settings, again, over time, most of these and a lot of these have a lot of cellulosics, cottons, lyocils, whatever. They don't like heat in the dry cycle, so get that into that where that's dialed back a little bit. And then obviously, and we'll talk about this a little bit in, uh, more in detail, rewash garments that have a lingering odor, and especially if that lingering odor is of an accelerant. Uh, what you have to the right here is our little laundry magnet that we uh, give away uh, for folks to just give them an idea of things that uh, reminder that they can pop right there on that washer and dryer. I don't get any uh, kickbacks from Tide that just happened to be the easiest image uh, for everybody to relate to. Of that cascade of characters right there, that's the only one you can use. On the far left there is the OxyClean that we talked about. Uh, to the right of the Tide bottle, we have our liquid uh, bleach. Don't want to use that. To the far right and in the middle between Oxy and Tide, we have our fabric softeners, the dryer sheets on the far right, and our liquid fabric softener there between OxyClean and Tide. Don't want to use that. And the one there that folks don't usually think a lot about, that's your spray-on starch. We don't want to be putting additives into our flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. Uh, we don't want to put anything in there that can possibly adversely affect the performance of that chemistry that needs to happen during a thermal event. Remember, without getting too detailed in this particular webinar, you're dealing with uh, fiber technology that has fire retardant chemistry prior to being extruded. You're dealing with molecular check technology where we're changing the molecular formula of a fiber so that it doesn't uh, and can't ignite. And then we're also taking cotton-rich, cellulosic-rich uh, fabrics, aka fuel, and we're imparting uh, fire retardant uh, chemistry in there to where it's bonding in that space. And we don't want to put anything else in that space that could possibly adversely affect that chain reaction. So again, simple things that if we just don't do, we're not going to have any issues. Important, especially, well, we're pretty much through it. Uh, we're starting to get into those colder months, so we've survived another vector-borne uh, disease uh, season. Uh, that's our mosquitoes, especially with Zika and Nile now. 
looking into uh, our ticks. Uh, if you talk to our vector-borne uh, disease people, you talk to the CDC, uh, between uh, Lyme disease, uh, Zika virus, uh, West Nile, etc., those are far more uh, hazardous to our, our outside workforce than a lot of other things that, that we've been talking. So how do we protect against those folks? Or how do we protect folks against these nasty little critters? Uh, I mean, one of those uh, fun trivial pursuit uh, questions are, uh, who is responsible for more deaths of humans than anything else? Is it the hippo? Is it the lion? Whatever. It's the mosquito. That being said, we can't use DEET on our flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. DEET has a flash point of about 300 degrees. When you're talking about arc flashes, which are in the thousands of degrees, and you're talking flash fires between 1,500 and 2,000, you're flashing off all your uh, insect repellent there, and you're having after flame, and you're getting more hurt than you should be if you're exposed to that thermal event. So what options do we have? Uh, with a little bit of research, uh, there are options available. Uh, that Google box is excellent for tracking it down. You can look for flame-resistant, safe insect repellents, arc-rated clothing-tested insect repellents, there is a number of them out there. Uh, just a couple things to think about. Most of the ones that have received a and have been tested to uh, arc flash and have the documentation are going to be permethrin based. Uh, most manufacturers, most fabric folks are comfortable now where we are in time with permethrin being added to to where it's not affecting the FR properties, but Again, disclaimer here, you're going to have to research the insect repellent, talk to your provider, talk to the manufacturers, and make sure they're in agreement there. The other thing you need to remember is permethrin is clothing only. We do not want to put permethrin on our skin. So that's something, again, from a training standpoint, hey, we're, we're treating these uh, with whatever spray version we have, when we're not standing in them, we're treating them when they're separate, et cetera. The other way to go is you look at technologies where that uh, repellency is imparted into the fabric. And there are uh, folks out there doing that today. Uh, so make sure you talk with your provider about those different kinds of solutions. But the key is, is to make sure that we are not utilizing uh, DEET uh, for our flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. This one also, when we get into care and maintenance, it is how much is too much. Uh, one of the toughest things we have to do from a training standpoint is uh, legislating common sense. Uh, like my father told me a long time ago, he said, hey, Derek, one thing you'll learn as you go through, uh, the one thing about common sense, it ain't all that common. So how much secondary accelerants, oils, greases, et cetera, is permissible in my work environment? That's really kind of up to you. And I'll show you a couple of samples here of what I mean. But when we talk about soiled garments, it's important to understand that discoloration, staining are not indicators in and of themselves of a reduction in protection. We want to monitor the accumulation of any secondary accelerants on or around your garments throughout the workday. We definitely want to be our brother and sister's keepers. They may be into some stuff that they walk away from and don't realize just how dirty they've gotten, how much of that accelerant, and say, hey, time out. We need to get you out of the hazard, a.k.a. if you're in the utilities, you're not getting in that bucket and going up into the uh, – Energized lines, if you're in 70E, we're definitely not getting you in front of and in that arc flash boundary. If we are in oil and gas and refinery, we're definitely getting you off-site. If not, getting you changed and getting you back to work. After laundering, uh, so the garment's stained, smells fresh and clean, off to work you go. If you go in and you grab that shirt or pant and it's stained and it still smells like accelerant, 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is accelerant. It is fuel. It will be consumed in a thermal event. So if your garments smell like fuel, guess what? They are fuel. Do not wear them. Have them laundered until that's gone. And if that can't be done, get that garment replaced. Here on your screen is a couple of examples of just what I was talking about. Uh, the picture to the left, if that is stained and that garment is clean, the FR properties are still intact, will do exactly what you want them to do. Same with the one in the right. If that garment is clean, that's how you get it back. And because you work in a high soil environment, hey, I'm just going to go to work. They're fine. Your FR properties are intact. During the workday, and this is where we have to establish some protocols, some SOPs, to, and what those are for your facility under your conditions, I can't dictate. But if that is secondary accelerant accumulated throughout the workday, that is too much fuel on that garment. That garment, those FR properties where that is stained will be nullified. That fuel will overwhelm the fabric complex more than likely, and that will be an extremely large hot spot. Now, the fact that aren't the places where there is no secondary accelerant, they will still be doing their job self-extinguishing, continuing to putting themselves out. The one on the right, if those little flare-ups happen during your workday, that may be perfectly acceptable to you to have small amounts of secondary accelerant that are there in those tiny hot spots within that fiber matrix, the more than willing to uh, accept that. So again, monitor it throughout the day. Now, if we go through the cleaning cycle and we come back and again, we smell odor, that is fuel. Uh, so what's the takeaway? Discoloration and stains alone are not an indicator of reduction in, in protection. But if there is odor of secondary accelerant there, fuel is fuel and it will be consumed. Repairing or replacing. This is a tough one for a garment guy to cover. Can you do it? Yes, you can. Um, it's like fabrics. It's Aramid or Nomex or FR thread. So that Google box that I, that I mentioned earlier on, go in there and do a search for Aramid or FR thread. Uh, jump on a popular uh, consumer website. Pick yourself up a couple of spools of FR thread in the appropriate colors. Save some of your older garments, and you can make repairs. There is no standards, as you would expect, on how much is allowed to be repaired. Our rule of thumb is a nickel and three inches and one of each, one nickel-sized hole and one three-inch tear. And any more than that, you definitely don't want to be uh, looking like Frankenstein and all sewn up and put back together. You want to monitor uh, those kind of repairs. The other things you want to look out is over time, whether you're growing or the garment's getting less, uh, look out for shrinkage, look out for... Uh, spread, however you want to put it. If you've gotten bigger, get new gear. If they're starting to shrink over time, get new gear. Uh, and that has to be within reason. You don't want to see a three to four inch shrinkage. Rule of thumb, good quality manufacturers, no more than 5%. Good manufacturing sh shoots for about 3%. So you can do the math and you can see where the shrinkage is and, and where this that happens to be. So again, rule of thumb, save some older garments for your cut and sew projects at home. Ideally, uh, the mindset that I would want to see is start treating this stuff like you would your fall protection, your fall harness. You wouldn't wear this stuff incorrectly, a.k.a. you wouldn't not cinch up your leggings on your fall harness. You wouldn't for secure your chest piece. You would check the integrity of your D-ring. You would look at your webbing. You're not allowed to climb if you have cuts or frays in your webbing. I would say you're not allowed to go onto the facility if you have cuts or frays in, in your FR clothing. They are both life-saving pieces of equipment, and you're going to compromise their performance and be hurt more than you need to be if you don't follow those things. So here's some examples. Uh, on the left upper here, you have in that red shirt, that's threadborne. That cannot be repaired. Those elbows 
and that garment's not going to protect you as well as it should. Replace that garment. On the far right, you have a tear there on the seam. That's arguably right around three inches. If I had aramid thread at home or if my industrial launderer took that out, put it on their sewing machine, put FR thread on there, could we stitch that up on the seam and get away with that? High, high probability. Lower left, that's on the seam, but man, that's about 9 to 12 inches of tear there. Do you want to have that reconstructed on your uh, PPE? Again, up to you. It's possibly fixable, arguable, but that's way beyond what I would be doing uh, after initial construction. In the middle here, that is a small tear, but look at its irregularity. Again, something to consider in repairing that. A single tear at the top there, possibly repairable, this irregular format. Definitely don't want to be patching it. Uh, could we repair it? Arguably, yes. Be cautious of uh, folks that are not comfortable doing FR clothing, and that ends up being a 6535 patch. Again, completely compromised uh, your whole FR uh, garment and possibly, in, uh, in theory, your whole FR program. So we've talked in and around this a little bit. What are some things when I should consider looking at an industrial laundry versus looking at taking this stuff home and doing it myself? It's relatively uh, broken down into the simples. If you have a high soil environment, you want to have higher water temperature and stronger chemistry than you can muster up at home. That's a great candidate for uh, utilizing an industrial launderer. Uh, your clothing contains contaminants that you don't want going home, so you're either left washing them on site or utilizing professionals, and, and that's what they do. So that's a good way to consider. The logistics make sense. They're literally and figuratively right around the corner. They're, they're, you're right in the heart of their service area. If there's stuff that needs to get done on a whim, whatever, they can perform from a service standpoint relatively easy. You are comfortable with a simplified product line. You are comfortable with light blue over navy, khaki over navy, royal blue coveralls. Dialed in, streamline your things, and good to go. And then turnover. You might have high turnover. You might want to get into a bulk program. Much easier to have an IL partner uh, working with you in order to manage that process than trying to do it yourself. What can you do? You can get a hybrid. And we'll talk about that piece shortly once we go into choice programs or considering my home laundering. What are some of the things there to where it makes sense? Because you can do this stuff relatively easily at home, assuming that some things are met. One, your employees never come back to a centralized location. Or two, you are far out of a normal service area where you are stressing that service provider. Makes sense. You have relatively low to medium soils. You definitely don't have any concerns about contaminants going home. Uh, low turnover, tenured employees. Uh, that way you minimize cost of outfitting. You're not going to lose your investment over time. You don't have to worry about transition. You would like to have some flexibility, flexibility not only in terms of how long you are locked into something, but also in the access of technology. As in other industries, the technology in FR, the fibers, fabrics, garments are changing relatively rapidly, and you want to have access to that. And then provide your people choice. You don't necessarily want to lock them into, quote, unquote, a uniform look or, quote, unquote, a branded look. You want them to be able to, hey, as long as we have our company logo embroidered on the chest pocket, you can have plaid, you can have tan, you can have uh, different styles, cargo pants, jeans, work pants that make it advantageous for you to do that. Now, there is a way to get the best of both worlds. For example, you have one section in your facility that wears coveralls. They wear Navy coveralls. You can contract out by uh, department. 
you can also contract out where I have high soil guys, but not everybody rotates through there. You can buy all the clothes up front and have what's called an NOG or not our garment service where they pick up the clothes utilizing their uh, higher water temperatures, etc., and you pay Per use, you may pay a higher cost per use at that time, but it may be more efficient for you. If you have any of these or a combination of these, feel free to talk to uh, your industrial launderer. Feel free to talk to any and have some meeting of the minds. There are ways today to solve everything that is uh, comes across the, the the pipe, sort of speak. It can be solved. Uh, by utilizing both one or the other. A couple things to think about uh, when you're going through here, and we'll be wrapping up here, this slide and one more, and then we'll get on to your questions. One thing I always tell folks when they are looking to specify and what they're doing, one, ask for the manufacturer's guarantee in writing on letterhead and sign. Why? Because at the end of the day, that who is underwriting your program. Those manufacturers of those garments need to underwrite that program, and it has to be for more than just meeting the standards. That garment has to have that flame-resistant engineering imparted in it so that it's there from day one, day 1001, and more importantly, the day you need it. Ask for the test data for your HAZIC. Fabric suppliers, garment suppliers should be able to do that easily. If you have a has where there's cert, get those certifications. Every garment that meets those, just because they have one, doesn't mean all their catalog meets it. So make sure you get your certifications, and again, should be easily obtainable. If it's not, that should be a red flag. Then specify that only certified compliant garments are allowed on your site that meet your hazard. Work with proven supply chain partners. This is key. Why? Because until you need this stuff to do what I built it for, a.k.a. protect you against an arc flash or a flash fire, it is just really expensive soil protection. But if you do need it to do what we built it for, we need to have the ability to assist you post-event. Depending on where that garment is ultimately comes from, you may be challenged in getting their technical expertise, if they have any, their PhDs, if they have any, all that test data and that virtual banker's box of all that support information on your site when you're called in front of the judiciary body. So make sure that you have proven supply chain partners. Then periodically police that program for compliance because with all the new stuff out of there, depending on where things go, they can get tweaked in a relatively short period of time. So make sure you are doing some due diligence that that program is indeed in line with what your original expectations were when you rolled it out. Then lastly, in conclusion, it is pretty hard to mess up good FR arc rated clothing. Asterix, asterix, asterix. That pertains to market proven suppliers and manufacturers. It is absolutely key where this stuff originated from, the, right down to the fiber level, to the fabric, to ultimately where it was cut and sewn, where did all that happen and who's going to stand about it. The great thing is today is thanks to our regulations, thanks to our very, very fluid standards, and thanks to you in the marketplace who demand this stuff, they're extensively tested, development around protection, comfort, and durability. The key there being protect you first, then we'll worry about fine-tuning comfort and durability. Over a quarter century now of fiber and fabric innovation and development is where we are today, it's far greater today because of the market and what's demanding it. Uh, market driving manufacturing to improve around comfort and durability, it is happening. We have lightweight fabrics. If you had told me 24, 25 years ago, we'd have fabrics well under seven ounces uh, that are acting and protecting as if they were seven ounces, moisture wicking, air permeability, all manufactured within to the fiber matrix and not an additive, 
not a wicking property that has been added to, but it actually exists. When we start looking at where we are looking at that, I don't know, that working athlete, that's, uh, that mindset when we're taking everything that we're developing in the uh, athletic side, the performance side of the world, and now we're bringing that into workwear, you're starting to see that a lot of that come to light here today. So with that being said, we're going to turn it back to Barry. As he mentioned, if we don't get to your questions in the next 10 minutes or so, we definitely will have them forward on to me, and I will do my best to get you the answers in a relatively short period of time. So with that, again, I thank you all for participating today. Great job, Derek. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, insights and your expertise today. We're going to let Derek catch his breath a little bit here, uh, but I want to remind you, everyone, of the evaluation survey. We're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen right now. Your input today is very important for us because it does help us improve future webcasts. And if you don't see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. Uh, you may also access the survey uh, by clicking on the survey button, which is near the lower right portion of your screen. Now let's go ahead and get to some questions, Derek. Um, I had a question about uh, cleaning and maintenance suggestions. Um, Thomas asks, is there a standard that can that contains these recommendations for cleaning and maintenance, uh, or would that be best uh, found on the labels? Uh, yes, and and yes is the easy answer. Uh, ASTM uh, standards that we alluded to earlier for home laundering, and then the one that gives our industrial uh, laundering partners guidelines will have uh, information in there. Then the labels, as you alluded to, uh, come with complete laundry instructions on the label. And whoever your provider is, uh, whether it's us, uh, my colleagues out there in the competitive world, they will all have those where you, in a downloadable PDFs that should be easily accessed uh, from their website. Uh, if not, just talk to your provider. They'll get that stuff to you relatively easily. All right. Uh, next, we'll move on to our next question. Delicia has a question, and, and we talked a little bit, uh, Derek, about cleaning products. Um, and she asks, if the garment has a smell, uh, could you use baking soda, or would this create a problem as well? That's a good one. Uh, I have not heard of any concerns in and around uh, baking soda. Uh, I have heard concerns with, with more aggressive things like borax and, and others. Uh, but if you were to, for example, and again, I'm looking at a toothbrush, I'm looking at baking soda and some small water, I'm looking at you scrubbing that on there, then putting it into the wash cycle. That's, again, with the flame-resistant technologies that we have today, that that wouldn't be a concern. All right. And uh, Bob has a, has a question he wanted to throw out to you. Uh, this is regarding an industrial laundry service. And Bob says every so often the industrial laundry service they use, their clothes, some of them come back smelling of some kind of oil or grease. Uh, and, and their thinking is that maybe the laundry service is overstuffing the machine. Is this uh, possible? Have you heard of this before? So uh, soil transference, uh, does happen, uh, and and he's alluding to the scenario that would be correct in, in a 500-pound washer. If I put up 490 pounds of clothes, uh, there's not enough room for all that agitation. And when we flush all that water out, you get soil transference. You take all that stuff that's floating in the water, and now we gently apply it through the whole load. What we can do, and what Bulwark does is we actually audit our industrial laundry partners. Uh, we have hundreds of industrial laundry partners uh, acro across uh, North America, and there actually goes through an audit process so that we can go out and help them because uh, FR clothing, AR clothing is not everyday 6535 or even industrial cotton. There are special things that you need to do. Uh, so that can be one thing to ask if they're utilizing our garments is that they get audited and understand how to do it. 
if it's something that's happening consistently, then you're the customer. You have every right to walk in and get a tour of that facility, sit down with the, the general manager and understand what is happening. Because remember, if they don't have a lot of FR customers and they're combining the FR customers that they do have, and instead of splitting it into uh, two loads, they're just going to do it all in one load, uh, yeah, that could be problematic. And again, I'm just speculating on a, an imaginary scenario because that is one of the challenges when you do overload any technology is you're going to have uh, repercussions, and that would be a repercussion of being overloaded. All right, that's a good transition to our next question here about home laundering. Uh, Joy asks, if I've been washing my FR clothing with non-FR clothing, such as cottons or synthetics, have I ruined my FR clothing? Uh, no, you haven't. Now, uh, cautionary, I would, from a good practice or a best practice, uh, I would discontinue that and I would wash and dry my FR clothing separately. Uh, just think about everything that you pull out of your lint trap is, let's say that's non-FR. There is some of that that is potentially getting on your FR clothing. Are you going to see a little bit of a flare-up? Are you going to see it? Yes. Is it something to where it would jeopardize or compromise or cause significant injury uh, in isolated cases? Probably not. But if you let's say you did it with a fleece blanket, and all of a sudden I've got very hard to tell. If you look at it really closely, I've got this gentle little fuzz that I've picked up, and I'm just going to go, ah, I'm in a rush, got to go can't worry about it now. Well, all that little fuzz that's in there and all those little non-FR threads, if I had a accidental exposure to a thermal event, those will cause, those will be consumed and you may have a little bit of afterflame. Would it compromise uh, your clothing? Not necessarily. Could you be hurt? Maybe. Could you be hurt that you didn't have to be hurt? Possibly. Uh, so, we want to remove all these uh, concerns in our caring of. We're just taking one more thing I have to worry about off the off the list. Uh, what you're at, you know, little thread here and there, some remnants here and there, not a big deal. But you can't categorically say that something, as I mentioned, uh, with a fleece. You've all seen fleece when they're brand new and they just fuzz goes everywhere and it's all over your favorite uh, shirt and pant and you have to re-launder it. Well, if you wore that to work in a thermal event, you've added an accelerant into that environment. We're talking about just taking care, doing consistent things over time to, main, to minimize any potential injury that you didn't need to be exposed to. All right. And uh, Tim has a general question here. He's asking uh, just for a general explanation about what's the difference between AR and FR clothing? Appreciate that because, as I said earlier, all arc-rated clothing is flame-resistant. So in order for it to go through additional testing, first and foremost, it must be basically flame-resistant. Then we take that flame-resistant fabric and we provide additional testing to it and it gets an ARC rating. Now you may say then, what about the ones that don't go and get an ARC rating? Well, we have lots of fabrics that, well, I can't say lots nowadays because most fabrics are both NFPA 2112 uh, compliant and also have an ARC rating. What does that mean? It's both FR and AR. ARC rating in oil and gas and flash fire hazards per se are not important. What they want to know is, has it been built and does it comply with NFPA 2112? So the answer there is yes. So it's flame resistant. Now I'm an electrician. I want to know, has it, does it have insulative properties and what are those? Does it have an ATPV? Has it been tested to ASTM 1959? The answer is yes. And my ATPV is 8.6. That's my ARC rating. So within the same garment, that fabric is dual hazard. So you'll see multiple labels. You'll see a label. If I'm a oil and gas person, I'm looking for that UL label that says I am 
NFPA 2112 compliant, and I've been in independently certified to be that. If I'm an electrician, I'm looking for that ARC rating. I'm looking for ASTM 1506 and an ATPV or an E-sub-BT. If I'm an electrician on an oil uh, refi or a, a refinery, I'm looking for both. And most, most fabrics today, not all, but most fabrics today are dual hazard. So we say flame-resistant arc rating because all of them are flame-resistant first, and then in order to have an arc rating, that occurs later. So that's why we put it in that particular order. I've seen others do arc-rated and flame-resistant uh, where they combine the acronym. So hopefully that's a long-winded way for what should have been a much shorter answer. Flame-resistant clothing in and of itself is not arc-rated until it's tested. All arc-rated, by definition, is first and foremost flame-resistant. Great. We appreciate the knowledge there, Derek. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time today. That was our final question today. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to Derek today. Once again, I hope you all take time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. It's very valuable to us. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our expert speaker, Derek Sang, everyone from the team at Bulwark, and all of you who listened in today. Have a safe day.